The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 8, Part 4, Essential Number 4C, Limitation of the Powers of the Prime Minister. Those Australians who remember Remembrance Day 1975 will have an understanding of what vice-regal overreach can do. It can go so far as to create a constitutional precedent whereby a person elected by no one can dismiss a government elected by the Australian people. It is difficult to conceive of something more offensive to the principles of representative democracy particularly if we consider that electing a government is one of the few things Australians can do under the Constitution, and yet it can be undone by a single person who can entirely disregard the people's expressed will. Constitutional reform to moderate abuse of power by a head of state in Australia's form of democracy is long overdue. However, the abuse of power that can be caused by a Prime Minister is probably far more dangerous. Because the Constitution places no limitations on their power, Prime Ministers can directly imperil the lives of Australians inasmuch as they need not consult the Parliament about either entry into war or sacrifice of independence in sovereignty to a foreign power. In practice, the Prime Minister may consult the Executive Council, Cabinet, but the Constitution does not make such consultation obligatory, and the reality is that a Prime Minister need seek no advice before committing Australia to wars that under international law are illegal. In other words, they breach the rules-based order to which we claim to adhere. This has resulted in needless loss of life by both Australians and those we have attacked in countries that had not attacked our country. Prime Ministerial overreach has also been more alarming in the 21st century in regard to the permission Australia has given to the stationing of foreign military personnel and weapons on Australian soil, deployments which are increasingly likely to commit Australia to nuclear war, both in other countries and on our own continent. It is to be hoped that such arrangements may be reversed and that sanity may prevail. But in 2022, as I mentioned in Chapter 5, It was evident that Australia, in seeking to achieve a military force and capability that is interchangeable with America's, in countenancing the prospect of basing nuclear-capable B-52 bombers on the Northern Territory's Tyndall Air Base, and in negotiating to accommodate foreign troops and long-range weaponry on Australia's lands, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, and his Deputy Richard Miles, as Minister for Defence, were endorsing the participation of Australia in America's nuclear war planning, without providing Australians with any indication that their views or the views of their elected parliaments would be sought. This disclosed a propensity to make decisions that can have, and may already have had, the effect of ceding Australia's independent sovereignty to a foreign power and exposing us to nuclear attack, to defencelessness in any attacks, conventional and nuclear, and to the possibility of being complicit in nuclear attacks on other nations. For considerable periods of its history, Australia's decisions on war have disregarded its commitments under international law. We hold discernible double standards on this matter. 
For instance, in 2003, Australia entered the illegal Iraq war, ostensibly because of a claim that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. The propagandist claim was revealed to be untrue, and yet Australia's Prime Minister, John Howard, acted as though the potential presence of such weapons justified breaking international law by invading Iraq. But almost 20 years later, as if we had reached a point where our hypocrisy knew no bounds, Australia itself began contemplating the possibility of hosting weapons of mass destruction, signalling a potential preparedness to break the binding international law treaty we signed in 1970, the Treaty on the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons, the NPT. This treaty committed Australia not to acquire nuclear weapons and to adhere to strong non-proliferation obligations. Australia was, at least until the 2020s, one of the NPT's strongest supporters and in 1995 succeeded with other signatories in ensuring the treaty was extended indefinitely. Nevertheless, in the 2020s, without consultation with the Australian people, the government began contemplating breaking a law it has considered to be vital since World War II by contemplating acquisition and or hosting of submarines and B-52 aircraft capable of launching nuclear weapons. As we have seen, this is fairly typical of the way Australian governments fail to adhere to the treaties they sign and casually flout the so-called, in effect, fabricated, rules-based order they pretend to revere. But were a federal government to fail to adhere to this particular treaty on nuclear non-proliferation, that would represent a whole new order of willingness to defy international law and act contrary to the interests of the Australian people, interests that we know from research discussed in Chapter 5 lie in peace, not war. In 2020, Roy Morgan Research conducted a nationwide poll for Australians for War Powers Reform, in which it was revealed that, quote, 83.3% of Australians want Parliament to decide whether our troops are sent into armed conflict abroad, and only 16.7% said they favour the current system, whereby the Prime Minister and the Executive alone decide if Australia goes to war, unquote. Bearing in mind the risk to life in such decisions, it should be evident that any decision which exposes Australia to war without consultation is far more offensive to Australians than the former Governor-General's disregard for their democracy in 1975. In the dismissal of the interests of Australians that is exhibited by the government's willingness to contemplate placement in Australia of weapons that do not relate to its defence and are useful only in offensive war postures, we can see a drama in play that is, or should be, far more shocking than the dismissal of a Prime Minister and appointment of a leader of the opposition as caretaker Prime Minister. In 1975, the caretaker Prime Minister fortunately faced a new election and the system of government was therefore fairly quickly restored. But with the current constitution, no similar restoration of the stability and safety of the nation would be reliably attainable if a Prime Minister were to make a decision on a war that was contrary to the interests and wishes of Australians. In general, the current constitution is inadequate for the purposes of protecting Australians from executive abuse of power, 
and not just on war. As I have shown in Chapter 6, we are exposed in relation to our human rights as well. To some extent, the introduction of a people's constitution would help us overcome these risks. But if such a reform is not accompanied by constitutional amendments to some executive powers, we will not be able to escape the particular risk presented by the fact that the Prime Minister is not accountable to the Australian people on decisions about war, a risk which these days can quickly escalate to an existential one. Amendments to curb executive power in relation to decisions on war have featured on the agendas of some political parties and the community-based advocacy group Australians for War Powers Reform has campaigned on the issue for more than a decade, as have groups such as the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize winner ICANN Australia and the independent and peaceful Australian network IPAN. At the same time, though, Advocates of a republic do not seem to have recognised a need to place any limits on executive power where abuse would present extreme risk to Australians. In seeking to obtain the consent of Australians to transform the nation into a republic, the proponents have not fully comprehended the breadth of risk associated with unlimited executive power in the Constitution. At present, unlimited prerogative power is vested in the Queen or King and is exercisable under Section 61 of the Constitution by the Governor-General as her or his representative. By convention, these prerogative powers are historically discretionary powers, not exercised on advice, although in practice they typically are. This means they are typically authorised and therefore exercised by the Prime Minister. In convention, it is the Prime Minister who effectively exercises the prerogative power to declare war and peace. However, in their suggestions for amendments to the Constitution for the Australian Republican Movement, legal experts on their constitutional advisory body did not recommend any change to Section 61, stating instead that, quote, The prerogatives are mostly a matter of historical convention and are in practice left unspecified. In the Constitution, they are included by implication in Section 61, and it is our view that they remain there. Unquote. From this inaction on reform of prerogative powers, we can only infer that even for proponents of a republic, it is not apparent that some sort of check and balance on the executive power to declare war and peace is a necessity. This may be due to views that minimal change to executive powers would be more likely to smooth the passage of a referendum on a republic. Executive governments are more likely to support such a referendum if it changes nothing about their power. However, this pragmatic approach, while politically astute, still leaves Australia with a constitutional model that will do nothing more than take the crown off the head of a king and put it on a head of state who in turn is likely to be permitted to act no otherwise than in accordance with whatever is permitted by the real power behind the new throne, the Prime Minister. Because of its silence on who has what prerogative power, the Constitution effectively leaves war powers in the hands of the Prime Minister. While a Governor-General may be the nominal head of the army, there is no way she or he 
could actually mobilise or demobilise it. In all practicability, only the Prime Minister holds this power, and nothing short of a coup d'etat could negate it. This means that if Section 61 of the Constitution remains unamended, the Prime Minister will have more power than the Queen or King, which might be relatively tolerable in lower-risk situations. But it would not be tolerable when it comes to the power to mount a nuclear war. Nothing can fix a mistake on that matter, and as such, it is time for Republicans and monarchists alike to come to grips with the life-and-death necessity of checks and balances on that particular executive power. Any government accustomed to keeping a grip on executive power will, of course, advocate for the status quo on this vital matter. They will mount any argument, no matter how false, to hone down the possibility of Australians having a say on whether it is in their interest to go to war. False arguments like this one in 2022 from Andrew Wallace, the Liberal MP who was then the Deputy Chair of the Defence Subcommittee on the Parliamentary Joint Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs, Defence and Trade. Wallace said, quote, if we had a situation where the Greens are holding the balance of power in the Senate, or maybe even independents are holding the balance of power in the House of Representatives, someone who could be ideologically opposed to any conflict could act in a way which is significantly contrary to our national interests. The executive has got to be given the power to govern the country, and particularly in relation to national security issues. I don't care whether it's Labour or Liberal. They can't be hamstrung by the Parliament. Unquote. This implies that advocacy for peace is contrary to the national interest. But it is actually Mr Wallace's argument that is contrary to the national interest. While he was inveighing here against the possibility of a single person like an independent or a member of a minority party capturing the power to make a decision on war or peace... He was simply suggesting that we should retain the system where a single person is able to make the decision. It should be obvious that a single person should not make this decision. The whole country, or at least the elected parliament, should make the decision and make it based not on ideology, but on a full and proper assessment of what is and is not in the national interest. Moreover, Wallace's argument is utterly specious in that the single person he imagines would be able to block the war initiative would only have the power to do so if an entire half of both Houses of Parliament was already opposed to it. In a parliamentary vote, no one person could block a war, or start one for that matter. It may be acceptable in Wallace's view of how a democratically elected executive government should work to say that, quote, the executive has got to be given the power to govern the country, unquote. But the one instance where the executive government should not be given that power is in relation to war, or more particularly, offensive war, war which is not in response to an imminent or actual attack on Australia. Wallace dressed up his assertions about executive decisions on war by renaming them as decisions on national security, although this was nothing but a species of Orwellian doublespeak, given that nothing risks our national security more than a war. But the ultimate insult to the Australian people was that Wallace blithely asserted 
that the executive power, quote, can't be hamstrung by the parliament, unquote. If executive power can't be controlled by the parliament, why do we even have a parliament? Why don't we just become a totalitarian state? Wallace's argument should be regarded as a total insult to the Australian people, inasmuch as it constitutes a complete rejection of the principle of responsible government, whereunder the executive government is accountable to the parliament and through them to the people. There is only one instance where it would probably not be in the national interest to have the executive power controlled by the parliament. That would be in the event of an imminent direct attack on Australia. In every other matter of our lives, vital and non-vital, it is absolutely in the national interest to have executive power hamstrung, or to put it more correctly, confirmed by the parliament as legitimate and consistent with the national interest. The parliament is there to ensure the government acts in the national interest. At present, however, Australia operates on a system where the national interest is determined ad hoc and mostly in secret by the executive without reference to the people. This is a system suited more to embedding Australia in wars, regardless of whether they are in Australia's interests and regardless of whether they secure the nation. It is of little comfort that both major parties in Australia have preferred what is essentially a form of totalitarian power to be retained in relation to decisions on war. In letters on the considerations of the Defence Subcommittee mentioned above, Deputy Prime Minister Richard Miles did not even give the committee a chance to consider the issue before he stated firmly that the existing arrangements whereby governments can commit Australia to war without parliamentary authorisation should not be disturbed. As The Guardian reported, quote, Miles told the committee conducting the review that under the existing system, decisions about the deployment of the Australian Defence Force into international armed conflicts were within the prerogative powers of the executive. I am firmly of the view that these arrangements are appropriate and should not be disturbed, Miles wrote. Unquote. This means nothing more than that this particular Deputy Prime Minister wishes to retain full capacity to act contrary to the will of the people. And given that, at the time of his statement, 76% of Australians had clearly expressed a preference for Australia to sign and ratify the United Nations Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the TPNW, Miles could not have misunderstood that will. His statement unmasks the fact that the terms executive power and prerogative power, terms that lawyers and politicians used so casually in their arguments for the marginalisation or disregard of Parliament, are nothing more than pseudonyms for absolute power. Absolute power to disregard opposition from the people and their duly elected representatives. Miles's disregard of the will of the people might be tolerable were it not about their life and death. As it stands in 2022... This issue of war powers is at the heart of the much broader issue about executive power and who should hold it. The common reading of the Constitution is that there are separations between the Parliament, the Executive Government, the Governor-General and the Judicature, which should help moderate the possibility of abuse of power and contraventions of the national interest. 
But in relation to war, these assumed checks and balances have always been discarded. This should not be surprising since the whole basis of the modern state is that executive power is created for the purpose of autocratic determinations on whether a nation shall go to war or not. In effect, the modern state, with its centralisation of executive power in a single person, was conceived with no other particular purpose in mind. Although it has been adapted for purposes of promoting the common welfare of the people to the extent that might suit governments from time to time, the main purpose of the modern state, as it originally took shape, was to centralise decisions on war and vest the power to make them in one person. And this persists today in our case, with that power vested in a person who has done nothing more than take an oath to be loyal to a dead foreigner and her heirs and successors not the people of Australia. Nothing in the Constitution limits the Prime Minister in decisions on the sacrifice of our lives in war, not even the national interest. But in a world where war now means potential annihilation, particularly if it is a war between nuclear-armed superpowers, it is evident that it is no longer efficacious, if it ever was, to confine executive power on war or any other matter to a single person or even to a small council, especially a small council of politically motivated people subject to the will of corporate donors and foreign purveyors of weapons of mass destruction. What point is there in an executive power that is unconstrained on decisions that have the potential to annihilate the people who trusted it with that power? This is not the 17th century. Wars are more likely to work out very badly for all parties and much worse than they did in the small wars that could be afforded by a few monarchs whose treasuries were built on plunder and murder of less wealthy peoples. In the 21st century, we have better options available than in the 17th and far greater need to choose them. Accordingly, amendments to the Constitution to oblige the Prime Minister to consult the Australian people or in an emergency to at least consult their elected parliaments on all matters of defence, defence posture and military planning and all declarations of war and peace are essential amendments, given the risk of annihilation that may be faced by Australians and anyone else caught up in the catastrophe of war.